Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Tea Kettle Junction, California. And Tea Kettle. It, it feels rather comforting, doesn't it? That's, it does. that's what we want. We want kind of a comforting session. Exactly. Uh, particularly after the last one. Uh, by the way, listening audience, Ray and I did evaluate the last session, and we're not going to do that again. We, <laughs> we decided to keep it so you can hear it, and it was our wanderings and musings about the core values of a facilitative approach. But when we concluded, we thought we need to be a little more disciplined. Was that your reaction, Barry? My reaction was we find ourselves more interesting recording than others might. When we, we discuss things on recording, we we think we're very interesting. We like our conversations. That's right. Right. We probably should do those things more in private. That's right. So what we did want to do was to regroup. If you remember from previous episodes, we said that facilitation really is a skill set, a mindset, and a process. And at some point, we're going to want to talk about the skills involved in facilitation. But where we were last time was really wrestling with this concept of facilitation as a mindset. And it's not, in my opinion, not particularly easy to approach it that way because it really is more, you can't do anything about this listener if it's not a mindset you have. But we do believe that in order to be a good facilitator, you do need to have some commitments and orientations or perspectives or approaches that are part of who you are. Right. We would contrast that with facilitation mindset as compared to an authoritative mindset or a marketing mindset or a results-driven mindset. There are all kinds of mindsets that people maintain. And what we're suggesting is that in order to be good at facilitation, you do have to have somewhat of a facilitative mindset. Otherwise, it can appear that you're being somewhat contradictory with your own orientation and then trying to do this job. And in fact, as I'm thinking about that, I think about all the executives we tried to coach who have, for example, an authoritative mindset. And then when they get out there and try to facilitate, it's abysmal because they don't have the commitments or the orientations that it takes to really do the practice well. And so when you say mindset, Bob, what I'm hearing is the way you look at something, the way you approach a task, the way you feel is best to to uh, succeed, how, how you think you can handle it. Yes, I think that's right on. And as we said, it we break it into that and the commitments you maintain, because there are some things that you're committed to in conversations. Like what? So for example, facilitative mindset says, I'm committed to holding up the minor voice. Now, what I mean by that is that in any group setting, even in small groups, large groups, there are people that will not speak. They have a very minor voice in the conversation. And one of the things a facilitator should be attentive to is holding up that voice, doing what they can to get that voice out into the room, but then also to support it. So for example, if I said to someone, you know, we haven't heard from you lately, Jim, what's your thinking on this? And Jim comments rather reluctantly and a little shyly. What I might do is then in turn restate or paraphrase, 
comment on his observation to affirm it, to reinforce it, to in a sense suggest to Jim, we do want to hear your voice. Bob, I want you to know that you introduced that to me, that phrase, holding up the minor voice, and it has really captured me. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of being committed and willing to make sure the minor voice gets heard, that in fact, what you're doing is you're making it louder. Maybe not overwhelming, but you're making it louder so other people can't dismiss it. To me, that's just invaluable. I mean, I put it in the context of even small children. There are some children who have a very small voice Mm. and they don't get hurt. And I think that's a terrible, painful part of their experience that they don't have that voice that that gets influence, that gets reaction. Mm -hmm. So when you say that as a facilitator, your commitment is to making sure that minor voice gets the attention and the influence it deserves and making sure those others who may have already have a major voice uh, don't overwhelm the entire process. I just think that's a fabulous way of capturing that. Yes. And in fact, when you said there are others, I think all of us have been in groups where there are people who have major voices. That is the person who dominates, the person who tries to take over the conversation, the person who even unwittingly not intentionally, just talks too long, talks too loud, uh, raises their voice in conversations. And what it ends up doing is shutting down the rest of the conversation. And so as a facilitator, maintaining a facilitative mindset says, I'm most aware and conscious of trying to get the minor voices lifted again, to get them back engaged in the conversation. So I think that is a very important commitment that a facilitative mindset maintains. I agree. I think another one that's pretty close to it, but not exactly the same, is a mindset that says my job in a conversation or my commitment in a conversation is to level the playing field, is to make the playing field level for everyone involved in the conversation. Oh, go ahead. You were going to comment. I was going to say, I would like you to explain a little bit more about that, because I think that's another one of those terrific phrases that once I see it, I can hold on to it. How would I know the, the playing field is being leveled in a conversation? You and I both as consultants have traditionally worked in organizations that have a structure, a hierarchy, and oftentimes we'll be in executive meetings where the CEO is in the meeting and you've got some vice presidents and then you've got some assistant vice presidents. Well, in my view, the CEO has the greatest status. And so in that sense, the playing field is never level because that CEO has the advantage of his or her voice being amplified in every conversation. Now, they can speak in very quiet tones, but the fact that the CEO amplifies their voice. Well, the assistant vice president in that executive meeting is low person on the totem pole. And so how we have to do that in terms of leveling the playing field is to be consciously aware of making sure the assistant's voice is heard. I think one of the things that I would attribute to this one as being slightly different than the previous one we talked about is that I'm really working at getting all voices in the room repeatedly versus the high status people's voices in the room more often than the low status voices. I might even say, for example, to the CEO, what I'd like you to do is to speak last. Cue the group that I'm having the person who has the highest status or higher rated on the playing field, so to speak, to not speak first in order to get other voices in the room. So whatever I can do to put everyone on the same level is what I'm working at. Now, does that make sense or would you say it differently? 
No, it does. And I think one of the things I'm trying to picture is part of that leveling the playing field is not allowing volume to have more influence than it should when people are loud or shouting things down and not allow a certain form of presentation to have more influence. I mean, I'm thinking that in a lot of conversations I've been in, there are people who have data up the wazoo. I mean, they just know facts. They know dates. They know numbers. And they share those as if that should be the sole influential factor. When in fact, part of leveling the playing field is considering other issues than just a pure data. It's how that fits. Now, I don't want to make everyone else level. I mean, I'm not trying to just make everyone on the same level, but I want to level it so that people can contribute in a place that they feel comfortable. They feel like they've got something to say. So that really helps create the picture for me that that my goal there is not to make everyone equal. There's some who are by, by definition structurally unequal. Uh-huh. But to make sure that contributions can be offered in a environment in which they all have a chance to have influence. That yep, was, that's it. That one. I know one that you had commented on, and I'll throw it to you, is I think a commitment that facilitators have to have is asking questions more than providing answers. Oh, no, I, I agree. I think one of these the things I always keep in mind is what is the current balance of inquiry versus advocacy? And my view is that anytime a group becomes more than 50% involved in advocacy, we're not going to reach where we want to go. We're not going to create dialogue. We're not going to make it easier. It's going to get harder. And so I'm constantly looking for that balance. Are people inquiring? Are they curious? What I'm hearing you say in this notion of asking questions more than providing answers, you're looking at the group and saying one measure is am I seeing more of the group ask questions versus providing answers? And one way I approached this thought in terms of a commitment of a facilitator is I need to be one that in any group setting, in any conversation, I'm asking more questions than providing answers. You're setting the model. Well, even more than that. I think so often what we want to do is we hear something that really attracts our attention. We have a comment we want to make. And so we want to jump in there and whether it's an answer or whether it's just an observation or a comment. And I think as a facilitator, your mindset ought to be, I am coming in here to ask questions. I am coming in here to explore with the group and to get the group to explore. And I don't do that by making statements. Which says to me, Bob, that's part of the problem in taking a member of the group and making them the facilitator. Hmm. Not that you can always afford to have outside facilitation, particularly from outside the company. But if there's someone within the company that's not a part of your group that you think has those skills, that really allows them to be more effective. Because when you ask someone who is versed in the subject, who has spent a lifetime trying to make it work, having them not respond to those kind of cues, not respond to those kind of prompts, uh, it's almost impossible for them. They've spent a lifetime hearing these things and working through them and understanding them. So when someone says something that kind of picks their ears up and they listen, it's going to be almost impossible for them not to join in in a comment and start discussing it as a member rather than keeping a little bit of distance so they can keep away from the assertions and stay into the questions. I think you're absolutely right. It does make it doubly difficult for a person who's a part of the group, a part of the team, to be the facilitator in a conversation. It doesn't make it impossible, but it does make it much more difficult for them to do it. In fact, one of the thoughts I had, I think we probably talked about this during our conversations on dialogue, the facilitative mind has to have a commitment to the process of the conversation, not the content. And even that distinction may be valuable. For the listener to think, in any conversation, there is content and there is process. And so as a person who has a facilitative mindset, I have to be committed 
to the process. Uh, one last commitment that I would put out there regarding the facilitative mind is a commitment to viewing and engaging conversation as an improvisational process. Now, what I mean by that is I have encountered a lot of people who view conversation as either a static process or it's a rote process, or it's a scripted process, or it's linear. It ought to just simply run its course in a particular direction. It ought to have an end outcome. It's almost like setting an agenda and ticking it off. We've got to stay focused, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a facilitative mindset says, no, we have to view conversation. It's not that we shouldn't have agendas, not that it shouldn't be structured, not that there isn't a beginning and an end point, but we should view conversations a bit more improvisational. But that is, we are actually creating things as we go. You had asked me to share my experience some time ago. I actually phoned Second City in Chicago. It was the scariest experience I ever had. It was me and 20 John Belushi wannabes. They were all younger people. And so I was in this setting. Well, the fundamental principle that I really picked up at Improv is that most people tend not to view conversations when you get into a meeting as this unfolding improvisational moment that we can create a certain reality. And as a result, the conversation doesn't flow. So back to what I'm really trying to say here is that the facilitative mindset says, no, I approach conversations as potentially improvisational, but they have an improvisational quality. Observations? Yeah, I would say that uh, your fear is what people need to come to grips with. They don't want to walk into conversations unprepared. They don't want to sound foolish. They don't want to make mistakes. And yet what you're saying is part of staying in the moment, part of the improv is that you not focus on that, that you not try to prevent certain things from coming into your thinking, but you share them as they do. Mm -hmm. Now, believe it or not, we're within a few minutes of wrapping up this episode. So I think what we need to do is talk a bit about what I referred to early on as the orientations or perspectives or approaches that are a part of a facilitative mindset. And one of the orientations that I think people have to have to be effective facilitators is one that says, my job is to stay present, to stay in the conversation and not to drive it, uh, not to necessarily pontificate about it, but simply being present, that I have to have a mindset that says, I'm willing to be present in this conversation. Another one in your mind? I'm always drawn to the mindset that says, I've got to slow listen, mm. which is to say, I've got to embrace silence. I've got to allow the silence to work. Now, the kind of pictures we've been giving of conversation, it seems like there, are, there is no silence. People are just shouting and ranting. But very often these conversations, particularly when you get to very difficult parts of the conversation, mm. about problem solving, silence occurs. And you've got to be willing, your mindset is not to overrun that silence, not to talk people through that silence, but to let the silence do its job, which is to put some pressure on conversation and for people to consider more thoughtfully what it is they want to say. Yes. So I think the idea of slow listening. I jump in there with that and offer a slightly counter perspective. I think one of the things that a person who wants to facilitate has to be aware of is the energy in the conversation. There are a lot of people, if I were to take, for example, the authoritarian mindset or the results-driven mindset, or even, as you said, the data-driven mindset. I'm just going to put the data out there and it speaks for itself. Oftentimes, those mindsets don't even think about the idea, how do we maintain the energy in the conversation? How do we move it along? And I think one of the fears related to silence is that it energy sapping. That is, we reach this lull, people are uncomfortable. It's not uncomfortable because we've gotten to a point that's really important. It's uncomfortable because we've gotten to a lull and we don't know what to say next. And I think that's where a facilitator might also think, okay, I need to move the conversation. I need to 
pick up the energy, but I'm going to do that with questions. I'm either going to reframe the question. I'm going to dig deeper. I'm going to probe further. I'm not going to take us off this topic because I want people to make sure they're exploring it, but I'm going to go ahead and jump in there and ask a few more questions. Would you buy that? Yeah, I do. When I said use silence, I meant not to feel the need to break up people's thinking because there is no words being spoken. I think people need uninterrupted time to complete their thoughts. Mm-hmm. By the way, just as a statistic here, and I may have already shared it previously, but when I was teaching, there was a study done about how long teachers wait when they ask a question of the students before they answer to break up the silence. So a teacher will often ask a question, and then there's this silence waiting for students, and then the teacher will say something like, well, don't you all speak at once? Who's not prepared or who has been prepared? And the actual time teachers were willing to wait, the average time, was 1.8 seconds. (laughs) And what was a remarkable finding, which is even more distressing to me, was when they asked the question specifically to a student and then decided to wait to see how long that student would respond, when the student was not a successful student, when the student was a below a C student, they actually waited less than a second. Hmm. So they cut the time away. Wow. So here's a kid who has even less processing skills who's been given half the time to think through an answer. And so you can see that that's such feeding behavior to not give students time to think. And then when they're not high-performing students, give them even less. Mm-hmm. Makes no sense. But teachers assume they're not going to come up with an answer, and they were uncomfortable putting that kind of pressure on the kid. And so I think that silence has been in that kind of form a difficult thing for some people to manage successfully. And, and interesting enough, I think that would speak to an issue that teachers who don't maintain a facilitative mindset are not going to be good facilitators. They're they're uncomfortable with some of the things we're talking about, right? I want to make one last observation. I think a clear orientation for a facilitative mindset is staying in the question. I find that most people, when a question gets asked, they want to get to the answer and move on. And even if you raise the next question, it's always, let's get this answered and let's move on. So I think a good facilitator would have to have a mindset that says, no, I'm not only willing, but I'm in, inclined to stay in the question until I feel we've really gotten to a point where we've kind of exhausted our responses to this question. And that's one I find fascinating because in most business meetings, staying in the question is very difficult for people to do. They well, you're right. Don't you're right. Stay there. Well, I think we're at a place, Bear, where we've actually done a pretty good job of exploring the facilitative mindset as a concept. And what we want to do is move on next week to both mindful practices. What are the actual practices that facilitators engage in? And what are the actual skill sets? Whether we can get to both of them in the one episode or not, we don't know. We'll see. But that's where we go next. Okay. Sounds great to me. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod, for the score that both began and ended this podcast.